Good day, listeners, and welcome to Dublin South FM. And today we have the pleasure of speaking to Teresa Han Campbell, a renowned organisational psychologist an executive coach who has worked with some of the biggest names in the industry to help them achieve their goals. Teresa is a true expert in her field with over 20 years of experience in leadership development, team building and communication strategy. Her insights on neuroscience and leadership will be very valuable for you today. You're listening to Joe Dalton, community radio with a global audience. Teresa, welcome to Dublin South FM. Hey, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, you're you're a woman who has many many talents. You know you're gifted in so many different industries. I should say that mm. you know listening to you over the last couple of months has allowed me to understand that you're as smart as hell. <laughs> Thank you. I keep fooling you. Keep yeah. fooling. Where did it all begin? You know from a educational point of view or from a business perspective that you wanted to get into helping business leaders, wanting people to be better than what they are? I suppose let's start with the career choice. Yeah. And it's so important to make the right choice. But how do you make the right choice when you're 17 or 18? And I really literally got to the top of the Common Road and my dad said, do I go right for Galway or left for Dublin? Right for Galway meant low, where I had a place secured. Left for Dublin. Education. And I said to hell, here, we go to Dublin. And it's amazing how that one decision sent my life in a different direction. And I suppose by the age of 25, 26, I'd secured a, a leadership role in education. Thinking I was well equipped for it, of course, my learning hadn't started. And uh, it led into 30 years of leadership in education. But every five to seven years, I had a chief let me out of this, let me do something differently. So I, I kept myself going and doing uh, masters, doing uh, business courses, uh, went to the Irish Times typing and learned how to touch type, which really speeded me up in everything I was doing. And all of these skills were dovetailing into effectiveness in getting the job done as a leader in education. I went through various uh, sizes of schools, etc., leading various uh, sizes of groups of of, uh, teachers. Uh, Ended up doing some lecturing in uh, UL and uh, Mary I, etc. But all the while I was upskilling, which I think is very important. While I couldn't wait to get out of college, I discovered along the way that learning is a lifelong process. So... I was really giddy in 2005 and I went to a group of organisational psychologists here in Dublin. I did the Hogan inventory, did all sorts of psychometrics, etc. And the result indicated that, well, you could set up next door to us and take our business from us. You were a natural. Would you consider psychology? So that's what took me to applying for a psychology in Trinity College. So I took a leap. It was dovetailing into a lot of, uh, let's say, difficulties that we had encountered personally with my, my husband's health, etc. So we were being reduced to one income family and I was looking at everything ahead of me. I said, I, I need another gig along with them at something that maybe could lead into the business world. So I had to do a basic degree in psychology first before I could choose my speciality. So I did the four year degree in two years in, in, in Trinity College. 
and leaving Athlone every morning at six, coming back in the evening, studying on the train, studying on the side of the football pitches and the rugby pitches, studying in the in the swimming pool while the kids were swimming, all these things. And then by 2009, I identified the University of Leicester for organisational psychology. I chose organisational psychology because in my experience and learning from the bottom up how to lead, I thought here, if people just understood the whole dynamic of the workplace and first of all understood themselves and then understood systems and understood people and behaviour and what drives people, etc. Workplaces would be far more likely to be harmonious places. So that's what took me to the organisation of psychology. It's interesting because, you know, the main challenge that people really have in life is understanding themselves. Absolutely. And it's amazing once you get into the race, you know, if we were to look at our lives in terms of decades, really the, the 20s is for searching and finding maybe and by the 30s you end up maybe getting married, ending up with a mortgage, etc. And life takes a gallop in a different direction. And if you have children, then you start, Yeah, commitments yeah. detract from you and yourself. We have four pillars in our lives. Your personal life, your work life, your community life, and your socialising with your friends, etc., and your me time, your self-development. And really, if you were to look at that there, which pillar wins out the whole time? It seems to be work. Do you work to live or do you live to work? And uh, that's what took me down the route of organisational psychology. And it was an unusual one for somebody who had been involved in education. And at this point in time, I'm told that I'm the only organisational psychologist in Ireland who has 30 years experience as leader in educational world. Yeah, because what you're, you're making yourself more valuable. Mm. You know, in a, in a world where things are getting very competitive and sure. there's downturns in certain industries mm-hmm. and new technology is coming along that will affect people's jobs. The only real way someone can thrive is to, as you said, you know, educate yourself to be more valuable. Mm. Because when companies are looking for people, they're not looking for, you know, A, B or C. They're looking for someone that has value. And you with this, let me call it search Mm-hmm. A search that you've been on or a journey mm-hmm. that you've been on to make you mm-hmm. more valuable mm-hmm. seems to be and it adding was, benefit. Absolutely. And it was in response to adversity in my own life. I mean, yeah, that, what yeah. was happening in my own life, everything was falling down around me with a, a three-year-old, a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old to bring right through to going to college, etc., along with paying a mortgage. So my response was get up and kick ass. And it suited me. It suited in a lot of ways to actually think more broadly. I always remember in 2009 returning to my workplace, having left it for the two years to do the the study in Trinity. And funnily enough, I would have been possibly the one most challenged in my own life. But I was the only one smiling. Uh, Everybody else was glum and doom and 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 gloom were uh, 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 prevailing because of Crow Park hours and all of these different pay deals and everything else. And I had to ask somebody to explain my paycheck to me, what had happened, because I had gone into my own world. And I had actually created opportunities for me. I smiled because I knew, I knew that I had really strengthened my self-reliance 
And that's what I have now. I'll work and I'll share right throughout my life. I have a saying, learning hoarded is growth denied. So I don't care if somebody has two PhDs. If they hoard their learning and don't share it, they may as well not have bothered. Yeah, there is issues out there where people will pick up an education and still gurgitate the same information over and over again mm. for years and years. And that's not really helping their students or helping their staff. So mm. people should be curious enough to keep learning mm-hmm. for themselves. So I'm going to ask you a question. What, what do you... What do you think about on a day-to-day basis? Like, what, what's in your thoughts all the time? I would... Having having uh, finished with the organisation psychology, I then did business executive and personal coaching. Found myself involved in a, in a, a merger situation where I needed to learn the skills of listening and shutting my mouth. And I did uh, became a certified mediator and I did psychometrics, etc., yeah. etc. Yeah. But all of that I want to use for helping people. So I like nothing more than a problem to present itself to me. Somebody to come to me who is stuck, who needs assistance. And I go at it. And uh, if somebody comes looking for help from THC, they have found somebody who is willing to give it her all and stick with them or even shadow them into the new the new version of themselves. Okay, so what, and so, so, so it's what, helping others really is what, what occupies me. So what do you visualise? What do I visualise? I visualise expanding THC consult to even meet a greater range of people as the workplace changes. I would have a lot of different uh, thoughts about the present post-COVID workplace. I do. I think people need people. I think uh, particularly our young when onboarding, they need face-to-face. I'm a mighty believer in the power of intergenerational learning. The learning that happens in, uh, in, incidentally as people mingle uh, in, in actually physically in the workplace. I don't think it's good for our young to be uh, uh, online, do, uh, being onboarded online and doing, uh, being introduced to the workplace online. They are already uh, consumed with the screen and this is just merely, it's isolating. So I think the greatest challenge for men at the minute is to hold on to his relevance. So then what's the common challenges that you see in professional leaders out there with all this happening in the world? Um, I I would say for leaders, I I read a report there, the world's largest report on leadership, the DDI report in 2021, and the leadership bench is shrinking. In 2011, uh, the, the respondents had put it at around maybe 18%. No, it has reduced to less than 10%. People are fearful of taking the leadership role because it's synonymous with role overload, lack of boundaries, being turned on uh, 24-7 and uh, dealing with uh, uh, incessant change in a, a VUCA world, as, as they call it. But the personal cost is becoming too much. Right, you roll it back. You need to get the person job fit right. You need to have the emotional intelligence and the vision for the role you take on. Sometimes people, when they reach the top role, the top level, the, the managing directors, the CEO's role, they plateau. They've arrived, 
but in actual fact, they forget their followers. I think to find that synergy and find that balance between leadership and following is the real, real uh, um, problem. It's 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 a journey. Well, then, yeah, but then that's you know you can have ego coming in and pride mm. kicking in where it it has to be a place that people need to understand that everybody wants to feel valued and mm. everybody wants to be heard. And yeah. if a CEO or an executive goes into a role, they have to remember the grassroots. Of course. And unfortunately, which, you know, we know that sometimes they can get a bit sort of diluted. Mm. Well, there's the famous Hawthorne studies. Way back in the 1930s, a guy called Mayo uh, did a study and it was around workers in GE Electrical and productivity on the on the factory floor gone through the floor. And they wondered why. So they took a, an ideal group out, put them in another location in the building, uh, watched them doing their work, asked them to explain the process to them, thanked them, praised them, etc. And suddenly productivity went through the roof. Then they relocated them back on the, on the floor where they had taken them from. And even the people working closest around them physically became imbued with this sense of purpose, etc. Ripple effect. So... The conclusion is we all, it's like watering a plant. We all need the micro recognitions. We all need the pat on the back. We're all human. We all need to be recognised for what we're doing. The, there's a thing called the psychological contract. So when you're taking somebody on board, they sign a contract, but there is the psychological contract and they claim it actually starts at the point of interview. So I'm sitting on this side of the table. The panel are opposite me. I'm sizing them up as to what the culture of the workplace might be and what might they expect from me. They're sizing me up for fit. So without either party knowing that psychological contract is started, I'm presuming and they're presuming. So if you could look upon it as on the one hand, I have the role. I do all sorts of extras. I really, really give it my best, but it's in the eye of the beholder. I in turn expect something. I expect that I'll have great terms and conditions. I expect if there's a promotion coming up that I would be well in line for it. And that expectation, if it's not met, I become disappointed and I withdraw. And the bit of quiet quitting starts. But it's all glued together. That psychological contract is glued together with trust. And trust is like Humpty Dumpty, break it and you don't put it together again too well. Yeah, it's it's ownership of mm-hmm. whatever role is taken on. Absolutely. But it's also for one to be successful in that role, you need to be committed, have mm-hmm. commitment. Mm-hmm. And trust is part of mm-hmm. commitment. Absolutely. So if you're looking at, if you're looking within an organisation and it's not in flow. Yes. We know then that there is an issue. Mm-hmm. And then we can look, you can talk about, you know, a toxic environment and how mm-hmm. that can feed through. But going back to the individual, mm-hmm. if an individual, which I believe, you know, the gift that you have, which mm-hmm. is helping people, mm-hmm. is for them to be very much self-aware of who they are and what they represent. Because if a person is self-aware mm-hmm. of who they are, they change themselves and the people around them. Mm. But it's not about making people change. It's about understanding what you value. Mm -hmm. Because I can't sit across from Mm -hmm. the table here and expect you to be something else Mm -hmm. that you're not because you're not 
fitting into my value. Well, we, we all bring our core values with yeah, us to the workplace yeah. and our own vision for our own personal lives, we bring it with us. The, 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 the professional and the personal are inextricably linked. So I can't leave my personal self outside the door when I arrive at work. But I should bring that, the individual differences, it's a beautiful tapestry that should be tapped into. So how do I know what I'm taking on, what I'm, what I'm interviewing? I'm a great believer in psychometrics. I don't, I'm, I don't mean that we would totally depend on outcomes of psychometrics, but it's a good introduction to get to a handle on uh, somebody's behaviours, their driving forces, their competencies and their emotional intelligence. And the final part is the acumen. So I've, I've, I am a, a trained multi-science analyst using uh, DISC and the TTI uh, products. And uh, it's amazing. It's amazing uh, in But do people want to know? That. Do people want to know well, who the first, they are? It's the first um, element of um, self-confrontation. Yeah. And I have, a, I have a title that I'm working on at the moment and uh, putting it between two covers, Knowing Me, Understanding You. So I must start with myself. And if I get on top of knowing me and I'm at home with myself, I know my strengths, I know my challenges, I'm working on my challenges because I know I identified them and I'm rendering my challenges and my weaknesses, strengths through working on them. My, I have a positive, open growth mindset. All of these things can be worked on and it's to come to that level of realisation and then you enrich the workplace and you enrich uh, the team, the teamwork, everything in the workplace. You know, in life, there is a line mm -hmm. and people live on this line mm -hmm. and they can either be above the line or below the line in their career or their income or whatever it may be. So someone will work really hard and they'll get up to this line and they'll do well. Mm -hmm. But then life will pull them back down to this line because mm -hmm. it's what they're comfortable with. Or if they drop below the line, they give themselves a kick in the arse and they get up, but they mm -hmm. only get back to this line. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the, the real success is when people move that line up. Yeah. It, it, sure, it has a lot of written on that yeah. actually. And we either live above the line. Or below the line. Or below the line. Yeah. And a lot of us default to below the line. And they would say neurologically, the amygdala, which is there that, that was in, 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 in way back in, in, in man's evolution. It was what kept us safe. And if we feel under threat, it kicks in and we suffer the amygdala hijack. And the limbic system, the emotional system kicks in before the actual yeah. wisdom has, has uh, had time to say, hold on, this isn't an attack here. Just yeah. calm, does Fight it? Fight or flight or... Uh, yeah. What was your driving force for you to rise above that line and bring the line up? It was a realisation when adversity struck in my life that the only way up was through me and by me. Craft. Yes, absolutely. I would come from a very strong work ethic background. I was, I think it's important where you land in a family. I was number six after four boys. So I was the tomboy who fought my corner. And then I had a younger sister. So there was an older girl and two girls at the end. But I came directly after the four boys. And it does dictate where you are. The middle child, they would say, it does dictate how you, uh, that formation. 
and how you interpret life and how you um, how you're formed, really. I recently uh, studied the whole notion of positive intelligence by Shirzad Shamin, and he would reckon that we have as many as 72 saboteurs, that neg- negative voice. No, 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 Teresa, don't do it. You know, no, you're not fit for that. No, no, you'll make a fool of yourself. And the rewiring of the brain is in our own hands, habit formation. So I can give in to the voice of the saboteur or I can imp- uh, empower the sage muscle. That wisdom that I was born with, but which life chiseled out of me in uh, having me conform. And once you go into the schooling system and once you work through and life is, is life is arranged that way that you, you, you must conform. So you lose a lot of the self in that journey. But it was amazing on a course I was on. I, I, I'm uh, forever upskilling. A course I was on, there were a number in my group and it was brilliant to see an ex-CEO of a huge multinational decoding his under 10-year-old self from a picture. And his journey now was to return to the pure essence of self, which he felt he had lost. He felt that the organisation, that inanimate system, had chiselled him to uh, be a person that he wasn't really comfortable with in order to meet the bottom line and to make the profits. And he now was returning on that journey of returning to self. And that's as strong as it is. It's all about the wiring of the brain. So, you know, uh, the, the, the neurons that uh, wire together, fi- uh, that fire together, wire together. And on the other hand, use it or lose it. Would so have- if you don't use the negativity, you suppress it and you emulate the Yeah, it's, it's a lot of people push away from it and, and hide it or try and block it. And, mm-hmm. you know, then that comes into you know, being anxious. But how many people are actually at home with themselves? How many, as I say, walking corpses do you meet in any one day? I think that whole thing of anxiety and particularly anxiety in our young, we're educating the language, we're educating the the children with the language of anxiety and negativity. And uh, I think children in viewing adults in a fearful state it induces them to be anxious. And I think that's what we're living in a post-COVID world. It is a journey. Mm-hmm. And everyone has different personalities mm-hmm. and everyone sees life mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. Um, and with myself, which over three decades in business mm-hmm. and being an entrepreneur, I have realised the only way to get through and the way that anybody can be successful in any Mm -hmm. business or in any career is to understand the thoughts and analyze the thoughts in their own head. Mm -hmm. Because the only thing that stops us all from achieving greatness is the doubt that we have in our own beliefs. It's the self-limiting beliefs, absolutely. But it's like Lewin's change management system where you unfreeze the old and you work on the on yeah. the new you it's you want to and you refreeze the new. You can do yeah. the same with yourself. It's acceptance of others. When you're at home with yourself, you'll accept others and allowing others, meeting others, as I do in my business, meeting others exactly where they're at. Listening, active listening, paying attention. 
using the prefrontal cortex and all of these yes, attention bases yes. in the brain and uh, shining a light on what exactly and where where the blocks are occurring and helping them. I often use a psychometrics as a starter to reveal to the person where their strengths are, their value to the organization and their their strengths their uh, what it is that fires them, their primary driving forces, their situational driving forces, their indifferent driving forces, and why it is they uh, act and react and interact in the way they do. And it's amazing. It's a great conversation opener. And then we move from there and into the emotional but intelligence. What about the person that you're working with or helping mm-hmm. and they realise they are lacking a lot of the skills that they need in the position that they are in. And they are screaming their heads off inside, but not f- telling anyone. It's it's that realisation, but it's a willingness then. Is it a willingness it's, to the, move and go into something that you're more comfortable the with? The beauty you, with emotional intelligence is you can, start, you can start working on that at any stage in your life once you become aware of the areas that you are uh, lacking in. Uh, I'm actually starting a course uh, with in conjunction with Skillnet in May and uh, it's all around the coaching leader optimising workplace potential. So work on yourself, equip yourself and then coach others through. That is so empowering for a leader. It, be, it brings them to a point of sharing their expertise and growing their succession pipeline from within the organisation. And how many CEOs, how many uh, 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 senior executives know the talent that's under their noses? Very often they don't. So do they have they any system for doing a talent analysis? Have they any system for matching the task to the talent? How do they do a training needs analysis? What does the company need in terms of training and upskilling? Who would they match to the certain areas of upskilling that's required? It's a proven fact that if I'm working at something I'm comfortable with, I will thrive at that and I will give my best and I will have heightened engagement. The Gallup reports would say that two thirds of the world's working population are disengaged. And of the one third who claim to be engaged, that level of engagement is at varying, varying degrees. Plus it's self-report. So I'm going to tell you, of course, I'm highly engaged. But my productivity might not be proving that. But it's all about catching the talent, catching the point where you can get the best from the person, listening, involving workers in the decision-making process, listening to them, using a synergy of different styles of leadership depending on the demands of the situation. But I firmly believe coaching style of leadership wins. But in life, you know, if people want to succeed or they want to, you know, have or live a better life, one of the most easiest things they can do is just try and do their best in everything that they do. Mm-hmm. You Absolutely. know, push that forward. But what then makes some people not to be you know, what makes some people, you know, not to be the best or, you know, lacking that confidence? It does not suit everybody to be a follower. It doesn't suit everybody to work for an organisation. 
they, they, you know, you had is the, it, but the, is it a trapment of getting into a career or a role because it was someone else believed it was the best option for them. So they were actually looking at someone else's values mm-hmm. to please that other person yeah, to I get think in. that's a thing of the past now. You, you but that's an awful yeah. lot of quiet quitting went on during the working from home, etc. The digital nomads found the laptop and stuck it in the rucksack and moved. Uh, it, people are coming into their own. They would say that Gen Z and the millennials are far more likely when offered a job, they're far more likely to say... I think I'll pass on this one. I don't think you're the match for me. And the latest is Gen Z in particular are very, very adamant that they want a company that has heightened consciousness around ESG, the environmental, the social and the governance issues and all this climate change, et cetera, et cetera. So we're dealing with the people who are evolving in a different way. And their their expectations. In a, a report I read recently, that that DDI report pinpointed that uh, newcomers into the workplace now they want clarity around what's expected from them. They want an employer who will invest in their development, particularly around emotional intelligence. They want to be listened to. They want to have their say. And they want to feel that they're part of something bigger. That, that's and always been like I, when I was in my twenties mm-hmm. or in my eight. I, that's what I wanted. I wanted mm-hmm. to be valued when I was working. I mm-hmm. wanted to be recognised. I wanted my opinion to be listened to. And did you to get the platform them. for that? Yeah, I did. It depends on the sector you're in. Yeah. It depends on where you're coming yeah, from. Yeah, but that's and you worked internationally as well. Yeah. So there's this. I think Ireland has become a very different that's place. Before, like that's that was when I was you know, 17, 18 Mm -hmm. and then taking Mm -hmm. that in 20s and Mm -hmm. traveling around the world. And I think I have a better view now than someone in 20s that's never traveled around the world and worked on it. Well, travel is the great... great But like your own family is is living in parts of the world. Mm -hmm. What, What I'm getting at is that, you know, the emotions that the young people want, they've always been there. They're just focusing them on different things. Today, it's the environment. In it's the, it's 20s, the value system. In, yeah, the value yeah. system. And they're moving with the, 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 the evolution of man, obviously. Yeah. You know, but uh, now the great, the, I think the great challenge is for the, the human to remain relevant in the workplace when pitched against the machine and the AI and the advancement of AI. And I think there is a fierce need to develop soft skills in our young. Um, our young have other ways of communicating, of uh, amusing themselves, etc. And unfortunately, uh, an imbalance with screen time in their lives detracts from that face-to-face and that growth that happens when we communicate face-to-face. Hold that there. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Business Eye on Dublin South FM. Welcome back. Hey, thank you. You having fun? Yeah. Actually enjoying the chat, yeah. Yeah, as it says, it's very conversational. Mm-hmm. With the development of business mm-hmm. and the development of the world and the way things are changing, what skills are will be needed in the very near future within leadership? I would say strategic foresight is huge. Elaborate on that, please. Being able to project where we're going. And that's going to be hard because of the pace of development of IT. 
being able to predict what's what's going to be the key requirements going forward uh, for men in the workplace and for, let's say, with the development of AI, etc. There's going to be less less need for uh, numbers in the workplace, but there's also maybe a little window there for a shortened work week. So the development of the whole person is going to really come into full focus. Uh, that ability to communicate with others, the ability to get on with a diverse range of people, uh, the ability to appreciate the individual differences and the individual differences in any one group. And the new word entering the whole lexicon is that thing of a neurodiverse workplace. So obviously you've got the neurodiverse classroom, you've got the neurodiverse lecture hall. So they're going to progress into the workplace. And it's about a, rather than we grew up not uh, totally ignorant of Gardner's nine intelligences, we thought, well, if you weren't academically intelligent, you were you were going to have a, have a, a rough ride. But in actual fact, we're coming into that space of appreciating the the uh, intelligences that people bring and how they can actually enrich the workplace and enrich others that they work with, enrich teamwork and arrive at a, a, a achievement of goals in a different way. We have, The fact that different routes may be taken towards the same destination has to be appreciated going forward. And above all, we need to hold on to the ability to communicate, to empathise with others and to accept. You know that notion of VDI, you know, the equity, equality, diversity and inclusion? Is there an illusion of inclusion at the moment? How much of it is tokenism? Do we actually do something about it? I heard a lovely phrase recently about the difference between inclusion and integration. Inclusion is being asked to the ball. Integration is being asked to dance. I thought it was lovely. You got it. I, I agree because I think a lot of it is just a token and a lot mm-hmm. of organisations are out there ticking boxes mm-hmm. and just going, hey, yeah, we, we're, we've, we're doing this. But when they leave that educational part of it, mm-hmm. they just slip back into the same slipstream. But yeah. with organisations and business and leaders, there's one thing that's always been a problem mm-hmm. is that when a company or an organisation is looking ahead, they're only and always look at the horizon. They never actually look over the horizon to see what the concerns or the issues are mm-hmm. for that organisation to mm-hmm. grow. That's always been a problem. So with everything that's going on and, you know, the the, the metrics that people are looking at, the technology that's coming on, it's still getting people to look over that horizon I think, is a skill. Mm-hmm. Well, it's in preparing them. And it's, you know, it's not just... I, I always talk about co-creating a great place to work. It's not just up to the leader. It's about the leader empowering the workforce. Yeah. yeah. And about finding that bi-directional flow of good energy. It's all about the dignity of the human in the workplace as well and respecting that. But it's about honesty in the workplace too. If I'm working for you, I must be honest in, in, in my day's work and what I am doing. And I must be a match. I must be for the vision and the mission of that company. Yeah, but it's, if I'm it's, not, it's asking I'm everybody. It's, you know, I can go back 20 years ago and I, 
when you say to someone, say, look, go out and speak to the guy sweeping the floor in the factory because mm -hmm. you'll get more information from him about the, the organisation mm -hmm. than you'll get in the boardroom from the rest of the, the executives. That reminds me of, a, I was doing a strategic, a strategic development plan for an organisation last year, uh, well, about six months ago, and I interviewed every member of staff and I got more information from the caretaker. Yeah than I got from those who would consider them, or those with equipped with masters, etc., and would consider themselves to be the leads in the organisation. And particularly about resource usage. I don't know why they want more resources. They're not using what they have. And it was, it was a revelation. But each of the parts should work ideally together to make up the whole. And I think the aim has to be to have find a, a, a centre ground of harmony. After all, those you work with during the day are your daytime family. You mightn't have chosen them for yourself. No, but they are but actually, they're actually your family. If you look at it before COVID, mm -hmm. if you looked at it, you spend more time awake mm -hmm. in your working life mm -hmm, mm -hmm. than you do in your family life. Of course. Because family, it's home, dinner, bed, sleep, jump sure, in. Sure. And uh, it's a new community. It's a community that people don't recognise. And mm -hmm. some people, as you said earlier on, you know, they put the key in the door, they walk into the office and they don't bring their family in with them. Mm -hmm. But they bring, when they walk out of that office at home, they bring the the worries of home with them. The, the yeah. work, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I did a study with Leicester University on the Job Demands Resource Model uh, by Bakker and Schofelli. And what I did was I tried to uh, extend their model and I added the resource, the human resource of a significant other in your life on whom to offload the stresses maybe of the day and then park it and move on with your life, with your living. And people who don't have somebody they can confide in, even a mentor or a significant other of some kind, very often end up carrying the job with them and ruminating about uh, things that happen during the day. And that no, A lot of the language has crept into the workplace like being a reflective practitioner, embracing journaling, and we have to make space for all of that. Reflecting on what happened during the day, how am I tackling it differently tomorrow, etc. Gratitude. And, of course, gratitude. But it's, uh, there, there you've got the mindset. So work on growing the positive mindset. But even, even looking at journaling, mm -hmm. I only start journaling, really journaling, about two weeks ago because I had an issue that mm -hmm. was festering in my life mm -hmm. that I really couldn't let go of. Mm -hmm. And in journaling, you worked. I worked it. it. Yeah. Now, the journaling part was my mother passed away. Right. Sorry but I much. had, she had dementia for a long time. Right. And I couldn't associate that. I had an issue with, with her passing when she, when she had dementia, I had lost her already. Now, that was a huge, big thing for me. Mm -hmm. And what made me realise that is my life's journey, journaling, mm -hmm. and my commitment to awareness mm -hmm. and understanding who I am. Mm -hmm. I think a lot comes together for us when we become parents ourselves and we understand more deeply where our parents were coming from and what 
they went through in rearing big families, etc., and the decisions they made and how they how they actually faced but adversity. But you're doing it for yourself, mm-hmm. or are we doing it so our children mm-hmm. can be better than what we believed we were? The struggles, mm-hmm. the hardship. Well, resilience building. I'm a big fan of this. Uh, you know, I, I don't believe you can actually teach resilience as such. You model it. My resilience and my refusal to give up comes from my rearing. Yeah. And how I witnessed the significant others in my life and my parents grappling when they got knocked down and how they got back up and went at it again. So that's what made us what we are. So what I'm getting at is all the knowledge and all the wisdom mm-hmm. and all your life skills, mm-hmm. and especially your life skills, mm-hmm. When you are coaching, consulting and helping an organization, Mm -hmm. you know, it's the life skills that you've lived Mm -hmm. is really passing on to those people mm -hmm. for them to be better. Yeah, they accommodate me in accepting people where they're at and accepting the value in people. Rogers, I work on a Rogerian style approach with my coaching and that is be non-judgmental with people, accepting them for where they are and believing in their infinite potential. But very often people get lost along the way through the stresses, the noise, etc. that is in their lives. It's including their actual vision and their realisation of their own strength. So really what coaching is about is being an active listener and nudging a person towards peeling the layers to reveal to them what they have themselves. So let's talk about neuroscience and let's talk about coaching Mm -hmm. and leadership Mm -hmm. and how your company, you, help develop people to be better in their careers. Mm-hmm. What's the first thing that you look for when you're sitting down with the client? I do a lot of listening. Obviously, we do the chemistry match initially. If at first, I reassure them with confidentiality, adherence to code of ethics, GDPR, all of look that. Look into my eyes, and, around my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and it, establish, it, it establishes safety for them. Yeah. And it's about that ability to be comfortably present to another, to have the positive regard for the other, to respect them. And it's amazing if you set that scene it gets a person in a position of trust trust and safety and then we start work we start the blocks begin to come and as um, michael bonje would say they are and what else so you get them talking and what else and you peel back the layers and listen but, and then okay. start on a route of rebuilding or of them finding that they're maybe too hard on themselves, that they're not really appreciating but that's it. the good of them themselves. Do you see the same sort of sets of issues with a particular type of I, management? I think uh, your your leadership style has a lot to do, your, your personality, right? Yeah. You've cast him a cray, they would have the five 
different personality types and they claim that we are all a, a, a mix of O-C-E-A-N, openness to change, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. So we come at, with these uh, elements and sub-elements sub from that. So if you could picture a person landed into a leadership role, where are, what combination are they of OCE and what are they bringing of themselves? What are their primary driving forces? What do they really hold dear, which they're akin really to personality traits? Are they altruistic? Are they selfless? Are they high in dominance? Are they more people-oriented? Are they optimistic? Are they pessimistic? And then how they feel the power they've been given. How they see others. That middle ground that they... Or do they even see that it's, there, it, there is a need to see the individuals that they are leading? And that an ability to share and to share the journey and to listen to others, tease them, include their opinion and I believe a workforce should script the mission. But if you have a person who fits a certain archetype, mm-hmm. everyone then underneath them, will they all fit a certain one archetype which will feed the leaders? Not at all. And that's where, that's, the, that's yeah. where the conflict happens. Yeah. Not at all. That, that, can, that won't happen. Yeah. That won't happen. But there's got to be a malleability. There's got to be a willingness to change. There's got to be a willingness to move with the flow. There's got to be a desire. I know from my own leadership days, uh, there's got to be a desire to achieve for those you're working for and to make your workplace a happy place and to be willing to pick your battles. There are some things not worth fighting about. What about if you have a leader who is... Let's pick one. Doesn't like criticism. That that is is it comes from they associate that their position of power they beyond being critiqued by another, and it's a, a, a closed mindset where they take criticism as a personal affront. So we're best off when delivering a criticism to critique the practice as opposed to the person. It's when it gets personal, that's when conflict interests the thing. So they would say the Fortune 500 companies are all a growth mindset companies who welcome conflict as a growth moment. They render the conflict moment as functional conflict. Michael Fullen says the absence of of conflict is a sign of decay. It means apathy has set in and nobody gives a damn enough to fight over it or to argue the point. But if you have functional conflict... Everybody's voice is heard. Everybody feels at least listened to, even though their their opinion may not ultimately be included in the solution. But it causes the group to become more cohesive. It increases trust. It increases engagement and productivity. And you will note a company that is of that mindset, there's very little movement or attrition in that company because people are happy. But what about then in an organisation where they don't want or don't like conflict and they run from it? If you ignore conflict, brush it under the carpet, pretend it's not happening, it festers, you end up with little power clicks emerging, you end up with lack of trust, you end up with gossip and rumours taking legs, you end up with lack of productivity, disengagement, heightened absenteeism and massive attrition, massive rollover of staff. Mm. And if you see an organisation where there's a massive rollover of staff, there's something wrong. 
yeah, there's there's obviously an issue there mm. that one sometimes it can be one person creating that mm. right and w- through. And you have pockets of excellent uh, practice, and you have pockets of uh, maybe uh, underachievement, underperformance. But very often that the underachievers are the ones who have the loudest voices. Those who work hardest and are being productive, etc., don't really take well to the underperformers being allowed to do less, but maybe have more of a say. So a, we, we have a massive desire for fairness and for that that to be recognised. Some people don't like publicly being recognised. Others need that little bit. Well, I did that. So I do need that. Do you know what pops back. up for me when you think that, actually? I don't know why. Smoke breaks. <laughs> <laughs> it's popped up, you know, people that who smoke and having six or seven smoke breaks in an organisation against a person that doesn't smoke. Mm. Do they feel, and I've read it somewhere where people that don't smoke are going to get more holiday time off. Wow. Yeah, somewhere yeah, in the States yeah, yeah. on it, yeah. Well, maybe the smoke breaks become little uh, bitching sessions. <laughs> yeah, the, the war cooler, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. where, the, where uh, maybe uh, issues are discussed. But uh, since we give so much of our time to the workplace in any one day uh, across your lifetime, I think it's so, so important to find happiness and fulfilment in that workplace. Yeah, but that only starts from what we spoke many times on before is from within Mm. and recognising who you are mm. and not expecting other people to, to, you know, jump down and do everything that you want them to do because it makes you feel good. It, it's about you just accepting everybody for who they are. But, it, but working strongly on yourself to yeah. know when you are at fault. The distributed style of leadership rests on the ability to delegate. But when you delegate, delegate 100% with trust. Do not micromanage. No. Match the task to the talent off you go. You know where I am if you run into a, a, a pinch point along the way. Check in with me every so often. And if you give that level of trust, it's amazing what it does for productivity. It's yeah. amazing what it does for the bottom line. It's amazing what it does for the person. And really, some organisations are going to find it difficult to identify leaders in the future. So we're going to have to resort to massaging and lubricating the the avenues for leadership from within. So it's identifying, they say that the signature strength of any good leader these days is the ability to identify the emergent leader in the ranks and to actually grow them. When an investor investor is looking to invest in Mm -hmm. a company, there's a couple of criteria that they look at. Mm -hmm. One is they see is the owner grounded. Mm-hmm. Are they are they the people that can get this company moving forward? Mm-hmm. The second thing that they look at is the assets. Mm-hmm. Are there assets there which are willing which assets there which will help the company grow and for them to get their money back? Mm-hmm. Okay. The other part of it then is it's looking at the strategy they have for bringing in income. Mm-hmm. And then the one big question they'll ask is, how do I get my money back? But if those all don't light up or if it's a great, even if it's a great product, but if the management or the the owner isn't mature enough, doesn't Mm -hmm. have the Mm -hmm. entrepreneurial skill set, management style or isn't grounded, Mm -hmm. it won't happen. It won't happen. And it's appreciation of 
the company's major asset, which is its people. My company's total human capital. And what I love about using, you know, some people don't like the word capital because it sort of smacks off your own. You're part of the... Yeah, the, the businesses are, business are just a company name is a company name. Behind it is the people. The, Companies um, are people. Yes, but the, the capital has smacks of the appreciating the potential in each individual and giving voice to that in making way for de- the development of that potential. Otherwise, somebody's going to feel stuck. They're going to walk. Okay. When do you feel it's time to walk? What's the indicators that if you're saying to, say, a client and they're in a position or, you know, what are the indicators that you need to walk? This is a business. This is an organisation which is collectively bigger than you. You need to get out of this. It's where somebody feels underappreciated, where they feel that they may be even passed over for a promotion when they feel that they might have earned that promotion. It's where there's a misfit and it's where uh, people feel totally stymied and that they're languishing and their interest is sapped. Mm. Uh, it's, um, in my own experience, when my vision was not appreciated or grasped by the other, by those I was working for ultimately, I said bye-bye. Even though it didn't suit my particular stage in life, it's like returning to study. I knew it was time to do something else. I knew I could go no further where I was. I later, in guiding a merger before I left, I knew that my vision for that merger, that didn't quite get it. Uh, if they'd let me out, it, I probably would have done a brilliant job on it. But one thing I learned is I cannot expect that my vision will be actually embraced and carried through by another who doesn't see it from my point of view. So then if you feel that your worth is not recognised, you walk. And I've done that a few times in my life. It takes courage. Your life circumstances sometimes hold you. It may hold you for five to ten years because you have other accountabilities in your life. But ultimately, if you're true to yourself and if you want to feel that you have really played your hand and used your talents and that you've been fair to yourself, and that you've made a difference in the world, you walk. And that's what I've done a number of times, but particularly in my upskilling and in my movement into total human capital. You get a chance to do it your way then. Yeah, I think the world will need more futurists. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And But I think the world at the minute is in a state of rapid change, confusion, and all of this, these things that come with this notion of a VUCA world. But we need stabilisation. We need to strategize, stabilise, mobilise towards a future together. Where I think we need to get back to basics. Community, community, work from the nucleus out. So we need to anchor ourselves and ground ourselves more. And once that happens, people will get more excited about the future. But you can't be excited about something that you can't visualise because you don't know where it's going or what's going to come up next. Yeah. yeah. So if someone wants to connect with you uh-huh. and wants to use your vast knowledge, experience and wisdom to help them in their organisation, where they, where can they connect with you? Well, you can link, link in with me on LinkedIn. You can go to my website thcconsult.ie you can DM me phone me 
ask for a meeting with me. I do a free consultation, an initial free introductory consultation to see if we're if I, if what I have to offer is what you're looking for. And uh, I always come with the promise that once I'm taken on, you will get 100% commitment and you will get results. And where will people, if people go on LinkedIn, what will they search under LinkedIn then? Just uh, Teresa Han Campbell, Total Human Capital, THC Consult for short, THC Consult. They'll get me. Teresa, it's been a pleasure having you on here today. Hey, the air has flown in. <laughs> thank the you for having me. shouting at us here, screaming. Wishing you all the best and a beautiful conversation. Lovely. And thank you for coming to the show. Not at all. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to more of these conversations. Thank you. Thank you.